Good morning, Restoration. I'm Brian Bademan. I'm the director of Anselm House, a ministry connecting faith and knowledge with all of life at the University of Minnesota. It is a special treat uh, for me to be part of your worship service. Not only do I have a soft spot in my heart uh, for the Anglican tradition, and it's a great prayer book, of course, but I have grown to love Restoration specifically uh, since I first met Rick and Molly at the Hilo Diner shortly after they landed here in the Twin Cities. And, and now, uh, since so many people I know and love have made Restoration their church home. So hello to uh, all my friends, uh, new and old. I thought I'd take uh, this opportunity uh, to express our thanks um, on behalf of all the staff uh, to you as a church for helping to update our kitchen, which is just around the corner. And uh, of course, many of you have been serving in it too. And so we're even more thankful for that. Um, you all seem to know so well that God reaches our hearts at Anselm House through our stomachs, uh, which is to say uh, your partnership has been incredibly encouraging. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before I get to the sermon part of my message, I thought I'd give you a quick update on Anselm House uh, in the time of uh, this uh, coronavirus. It's been uh, quite a year for us all, it seems, <clears throat> but Anselm House, uh, praise God, is in pretty, pretty good shape. Uh, thanks in large measure, I have to say, uh, to our brilliant and faithfully risk-averse program director, who, of course, had been carefully monitoring the global progress of the virus. Uh, the Anselm House team was ready to roll up and roll out onto screens and phones right away uh, in mid-March. Uh, of course, it has not been a painless transition for us uh, by any means, uh, since we love our house here. We love to see it full of students, and we love our embodied community. Uh, but we have finished the academic year strong and um, with some great programming and conversations. And uh, the team is now moving forward uh, with planning for the fall uh, with lots of contingency plans. So um, those of you who might not know much about Anselm House, I'm guessing there's some out there. Um, I do invite you to check out the website, anselmhouse.org. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we are a ministry uh, serving the university that connects faith and knowledge with all of life, which means we believe that the Christian faith is sort of comprehensively true. It's relevant to everything. It's not a weekend add-on, not a spare time activity, but properly a complete reorientation of life around Jesus. The American church historically has been much better at helping Christians think through the private life implications of gospel than the gospel's implications for public life or for all of life. Um, certainly, uh, the American church has not been good for helping uh, students at the university, at public secular universities in particular, or for uh, uh, faithfulness in the work that universities are preparing young people to do. So that's what Anselm House is about. We're, we're a community that takes this comprehensive calling 
of the gospel seriously. St. Anselm, uh, our patron, uh, was an Archbishop of Canterbury, so he has a special Anglican uh, tie there, um, had a, um, a, a, an amazing uh, prayer that uh, you may have heard. It's, it's actually one of the more famous prayers in the Christian tradition. Uh, it, it goes, unless I believe, I shall not understand. Unless I believe, I shall not understand. And this is our prayer at Anselm House. Uh, and, and basically it's getting at the point that without seeing God at the center of everything, we will misunderstand everything. And that's because God is the most important thing to know about anything. So that's the, that's the central insight that we're bringing to the university context. I will ask uh, for your prayers. Um, as we've all found out uh, in this sort of new Zoom world, it's much easier to maintain existing community in this sort of time of physical and social distancing than it is to cultivate new community. And so would you pray for our efforts to reach out to those at the university who may be falling through what might be wider than usual cracks? And certainly if you or anyone you know are interested in learning more about the Anselm House community. Um, of course, talk to Andrew Hansen. Um, but you can also sign up for a virtual 55-minute open house on our website. And we do these things routinely now. Uh, and we'd be so honored uh, to give you a more personal tour of our ministry. And it's very, it's very interactive. You can come with questions. And um, it's, it's a lovely... It's a lovely time. So I've been thinking a lot these days about the world we live in and the crises we face, and especially uh, given my role here at Anselm House, been thinking about how we prepare a rising generation to be faithful in these times. And it feels particularly challenging at the moment uh, with hard questions uh, that evade easy answers. Uh, mandated social distancing for who knows how long uh, just makes any work toward justice and healing all the more difficult. Uh, it seems we're a society on edge. I think we all feel on edge. And our social ties are feeling uh, fragile, to say, to say the least. And yet, uh, God being gracious and abounding in loving kindness... Um, I also know that we're not in the wilderness without a purpose. So I've been asking, uh, what does the Lord want to teach us in this time? What is his lesson for us? How do we walk faithfully through this valley? Well, uh, like most of us who live in the Twin Cities, I spent the last days of May and the first days of June uh, restlessly tethered to the news. Most of us were home anyway and couldn't concentrate well. Uh, you might find this strange, um, but one image that keeps coming to mind uh, from that first week of protests, and I don't know if I actually saw this, 
or just imagine seeing it. <clears throat> but the image in my mind is of protesters marching on Washington Avenue that Sunday night. This was the same night the truck uh, went across uh, the 35W uh, bridge over the Mississippi River. Um, but there was this crowd uh, north of U.S. Bank Stadium there on Washington Avenue going up and down that exit ramp on uh, 35W. Uh, later, a whole crowd of these protesters would be uh, arrested for violating curfew. But just behind them, on the east side of 35W, and perhaps you know this area, you can kind of picture this in your minds, uh, just behind the crowd was or is this sort of old dilapidated two or three story brick building. It's painted white, has kind of white on the side, uh, with what must be a, like a 20 foot tall hippie Jesus on it. And to his right and left are the words, and do you know them? On the right and left it says, love power. Love power. Seeing the protesters against this backdrop seemed to pose a question that I'd like to use to frame my uh, brief message this morning. The question is one that's tightly connected uh, to most everything we talk about and teach at Anselm House in our engagement with the university and its work, and it's this. Do we live in a world that is at bottom a closed material world of scarcity, where we must contend against one another for survival, for limited resources, my will against yours, my people against yours, a world ultimately defined by a zero-sum contest for power? Or do we live in a world whose basic structure is love? a world created in, by, and for love, a world whose basic identity is to be an object of love, especially human creation, such that to understand or, or treat the world in any other way but a loving way results in injustice and idolatry. But to live in the world according to love is actually to curate and cultivate and bring to flourishing the people and things and institutions around us. So the question that that mural poses for us is, is it love or power? What, what kind of world do we live in? Or to push the categories a bit further, which is maybe what the big mural is getting at after all, is love, in fact, a higher kind of power that's not zero-sum, not limited or finite, but boundlessly generative, creative, and hopeful? We've just read uh, today's lesson in Colossians 1. These verses, to me at least, are some of the most amazing in all of the scriptures. The apostle tells us, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. What does this mean? 
Not that Jesus was created. Uh, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that God is eternally three in one, triune, never changing. It means rather that even before the Christmas incarnation of Jesus, his bearing our humanity in time and space, he, Jesus, was already God's agent in his gracious purposes toward creation. This is how the great English New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce puts it. Starting with creation, through redemption, to new creation, Christ is always God's expression of love for the world, even at the foundations of the world. It's even more remarkable because the apostle suggests that the world was not made as mere matter. And that's sometimes how we think of the world. It's just stuff. We act on it, use it, but it has no meaning in itself. Sometimes we even think this way about people or ourselves. We as humans have no purpose or point beyond what we choose for ourselves. We're just biological machines with evolutionarily conditioned appetites. To the extent that we think of having purpose, it's extrinsic to who we are. It's not intrinsic. It's not given. It's an add-on. But the apostle teaches something different entirely. The world is truly creation, and it's not just created by God in Christ, as if he just set up the blocks and walked away, but through and also for God in Christ. Think about this with me for a minute. If God is love, and the world was made not just by God, but through God and for God, then it follows that this world, both its human and non-human aspects, has a basic status that is loved. God so loved the world. We could possibly even press into this further, as, as some theologians do, and say that because the world was made through Christ and is constantly being sustained by Christ in love, it is always participating in him and even has a basic order that's best understood and described in terms of love. We don't live in a material world. We live in a world of love, a creation. And this creation has an order and it has an end. Scripture is even clearer on the end of creation, and it comes up in passages like this one in Colossians. All things exist for the praise of the glory of the God who is love, who's revealed himself finally and fully as love. This ultimately is the literal meaning of firstborn of creation. It's a curious phrase. It's a reference to the ancient custom of primogeniture. The firstborn inherits everything of the fathers. 
all of creation is from Christ, through Christ, and Christ will inherit it all, even, dear brothers and sisters, the streets and shops and people of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Which means that we, as Christ people of all people, need to live in light of creation's basic order and end. To be sure, the world is broken by sin. We definitely see that and we feel and lament that. Sometimes this, this brokenness is what causes us to downplay creation's basic goodness, its basic order. But creation is not only broken, it's good. It's so very good, especially humanity, God's special image in the world. Remember Genesis 1, uh, and God saw that it was good. It's, it's repeated. The work of discerning the original order and the integrity of the world from the broken disorder is in fact one of the great tasks of the church in any age, a task for which the gospel is a kind of lens to clarify what we might not otherwise see. But we're not just scholars trying to parse out good from bad. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom of love sent as ambassadors to declare the good news that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And loyalty to this king brings with it a way to live and work and love and belong that is our true calling. It's true to our deepest identity as beloved children of God. Well, how do we do this? How might we point people or even point ourselves to this heavenly kingdom, especially in a world that's so hardwired to misread creation and to think of the world and its peoples in instrumental terms as merely things to be used as pawns in some kind of zero-sum game. And here I want to turn our attention briefly to our gospel lesson in John 13. It's a longer passage, and I do invite you to ponder the whole thing today or this week if you can. But right now I want to draw your attention to three themes. First, power. Notice the evangelist tells us that Jesus has it all. In verse 3, see that phrase again, all things. The Father has given it all to the Son. All creation. He's Lord of heaven and earth. That's what the evangelist is reminding us. Moreover, the Son is returning to the Father's right hand. There he will reign without rival. The point here, Jesus has infinite power and resources. But there's a second theme, and that's love. Notice also how John sets the stage in the very first verse. It's not really about the power, though Jesus has it in spades. It's about love. Jesus loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. This means to the full, 
or to the greatest degree. And it also means in John's narrative to the cross, to death. And of course, the disciples don't really get that part yet, but they will soon. This is happening on the Thursday before Good Friday. And so we have two themes, our two themes, power and love. But there's a third. That's what I'll call descent. Or knowing the end of the story, we might say more provocatively, death. What does it look like when the all-powerful God exercises his power in the world, in a broken world? He descends. I'm sure many of you have heard sermons on this text before. Um, it's really important to note that this is not a sentimental scene, uh, despite the way we might imagine it. By taking up the towel in the basin and washing the feet of his social inferiors, Jesus was violating everything they thought they knew was right about the world. The powerful should be served. This is why Peter is aghast. He's truly put off. He's outraged, we might say. Respectable leaders don't do this, especially if you want to influence people and shape the culture. But Jesus was showing them what true transformation required, how to live in a world of love and serve a God who is love. Like Jesus, we, his disciples, must descend, serve, die, at least to ourselves and our shallow desires. But more than that, we must learn to find God at our feet, giving, loving, healing, dying. Ultimately, Jesus teaches us it's through God's sacrificial love that healing and life come to us. And ironically, along with life and healing, come more power and agency and flourishing to the world than existed before. Love is not zero-sum, but generative. Through one man's death, life abounded for many, to paraphrase Romans 5. When power is exercised through love, there's more power all around. So to return very practically to our moment in closing, what's the Lord teaching us now? How do we, as the body of Christ, faithfully inhabit this reality of creation? Maybe part of the lesson of the coronavirus is that we shouldn't neglect the people in front of us, on our street, or in our neighborhoods. So I'd encourage us to start small, start local. Who are the people next to you now whom you need to serve, attend to, listen to, love to the end? Who will you see this week? Who are those next to you whom you may not be seeing? We know that we have strong biases as humans. Let's be sure we're seeing the world 
that the Lord is putting in front of us. And let's not instrumentalize the rest of creation in the process. How are you stewarding God's good world in sacrificial love? Our city streets, our institutions, our natural world. How are you cultivating the world toward its end in praise of Jesus Christ? Pray with me. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we give you humble thanks for the gift of ourselves and the gift of our world. Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live in your love, to walk in your ways, to see you in all you have made, especially to behold your face in your beloved Son. To the praise of your glorious name. Amen.